Hello, welcome to the Echo Podcast. By now, you probably know that we are Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. And we're called the Echo Podcast because this podcast is trying to echo the hearts and mind, the heart and mind of God. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about last week's sermon. And if I had to summarize last week's sermon in a nutshell, it would probably be, well, transformation. Hmm. So you talked about Shiloh's transformation um, since before you got here, Pastor Dan, Mm -hmm. and you spoke about um, the Shiloh people kind of wandering in the wilderness and what that looked like. And you also talked about Advent, how Advent is a bit of a transformative process, if you will, that is about preparing yourself for the coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. And in the most traditional sense, Advent is about preparing your heart for the coming of Christ the first time as a baby in the flesh, right? Yep. And then yet there's also this this preparedness for the second coming of Christ, which you talked about. Um and there are so many things that we could dive into. It was it was a complex sermon. I think you delivered it really well. Thank you. Um, was there anything that you wanted to talk about, just to jump off the, the front here? Well, thank you for asking. I, um, as I remember our worship planning process from a few months ago and weeks ago for fine-tuning, a person who has gotten very involved in the church but is a fairly new face around here um, has really earned our respect and our love. And this person said, I need to hear the story of Shiloh. And I thought, yeah, I guess you do. I I tend to think that people are tired of hearing it, but there are new faces around, thank God. And so for this person's sake, I I thought, okay, well, how do I tell it in a fresh way so that the people who have heard it don't feel like this is getting old and the new people feel informed? And so the idea then came to mind that, you know, when I, so when I get to a a church, you know, I've been a pastor for 27 years, and in our old United Methodist way, they would send you into a church, and and their method of appointing pastors to churches is, is pretty flawed. It's done with the best of intentions, but it's a process that is so nuanced by letters. I mean, literally a single letter behind your name next to a church name or whatever will decide whether you're going to a certain church or not and, you know, this stuff like that. And so what has happened in my career, in part because I'm sure God is totally going before me, I've ended up going to churches that are broken. They're busted. Mm -hmm. They're not running right. There's a wonky, wobbly part. There's a noise. There's a, you know, red light flashing, you know. And the other reason this happens is because that's most of them. Mm. (laughs) 
because that's most of them. Yeah. Um, and I have always tried to remain sort of faithful to my calling, but at the same time bring my life experiences to bear as a second career pastor and try to bring order to the chaos because there's always chaos. And then you begin to realize as a Bible student over time that God hates oppression and chaos. And those are the things that God deals with first. When creation was chaos, God breathed order. You know, Mm -hmm. when the people of Israel were oppressed by Egypt, then God removed the oppressors and freed the people. And, And so you get this pretty clear picture that that's what's wrong in most cases. And oppression and chaos look like a lot of different things. You know, it doesn't take much chaos to create the necessary outcome for the enemy in some churches. In other churches, it takes a lot of chaos. But they all suffer, in my opinion, from poor leadership and a lack of courage and a lack of, you know, willingness to deal with sin you know, and, and to call out oppressors and to call out, um, you know, behavior that is supposedly within the scope of church, but it's the scope that's been shaped by, um, tradition, which is something we've talked about a few times on this podcast, that tradition in the sense that church is being done the way it's always been done. And nobody really knows why anymore. But the spirit of niceness that churches try to maintain has been a real a conduit for oppression and chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, you know, these were all things that I was trying to address telling the story. Because guess what? Shiloh was there too. Mm-hmm. And there were not, you know, necessarily... Um, evil people, but there were lots of people who were being... Uh, employed by evil, which is a lot of the time what really happens is people who don't know any better, you know, they, they, they get manipulated and, and played for the sake of the devil's schemes, you know, and uh, a lot of that happens in churches. So I tried to address that. I characterized it as people fleeing Egypt because in scripture Egypt represents the world Egypt represents the flesh Um, to escape Egypt in the Bible is not only a literal thing but it also describes escaping oppression by sin and sin is about self-interest it's about pride it's about you know self-determination Um, and so the whole story of the Exodus is about people who were in a faithful relationship with God, who have been consumed by the world and then eventually became oppressed by the world. And so God has to systematically dismantle the power of the world and remove the people from it. And then they have to go through a wilderness wandering in order to get right and ready for the land of the promise. Well, 
that has always been the way I've envisioned this church's journey. Now, seven and a half years ago, you know, which is mind-boggling to me because I remember getting here like it was yesterday. And the... So that was like my main way of expressing it. But then I started thinking about how, you know, it's more complicated now than that. We, we are, we're not going into the promised land necessarily, but we're not exactly in the wilderness. And, you know, and so I just decided it was time to dial up the, you know, kind of fine tune the analogy. <laughs> and so I thought, well, it's Advent. And I want to talk about Advent. I want to be faithful to the season of the Christian year. And I started thinking about what Advent means. And, you know, that steered me into a whole uh, sort of expressing the fact that we are, in one sense, leaving the world behind and going into the wilderness to be refined. And in the wilderness, and, and this is something I had in my notes that I didn't say openly that I'm sure would trouble some of the people. But it's in my notes that, you know, one of the things that happens in the wilderness is some people go back to Egypt. Some people get swallowed up by the earth because they've become so unwilling to cooperate with God's plan. And, well, we had that happen. You know, it didn't look like Korah and Dathan's rebellion, you know, but it was, in effect, the same thing. It was a time when people cited me as the problem and then said, we're out of here. You know, there were people who just drifted back to Egypt and trickled back into Egypt. Like during the COVID shutdown, there were people that just never came back. Mm -hmm. And you can say that's metaphorical and it is, but it's also a pretty literal expression of what happens. So the people in the wilderness are being refined, but they're also being called, <laughs> like it or not. So by the time you're ready to go into the promised land, but you're not there yet, you're in a season of Advent. You know, it's inevitable. You can see it right there, you know, but you're not there yet. And, you know, the Bible says they camped on the shores of Jordan within view of the uh, of uh, Jericho, you know, they which was the first outpost in the promised land. And, you know, so they're, they're sitting right on the shores of the Jordan River looking across at Jericho and the edge, you know, frontier of, of the promised land. But they're not going, you know, so that's kind of what Advent's like. And so then I started trying to figure out how to express how Advent happens in Jesus' Jesus's first coming. But Advents are a pretty common thing in the Bible. And it's just never been more profound than when he came the first time. And the only thing more profound than his first coming will be his second coming. But in the meantime, we are, in effect the outpost of the promised land for the people who are in the world. In other words, we're the advent of Jesus that they have to encounter in order to encounter Jesus. I mean, the truth is most people never become Christians without first having a relationship with a Christian. Mm -hmm. 
There are people who have come to Christ in the privacy of their jail cell reading a Gideon's Bible. I know those people. And yet it's never complete, you know? And so one of the things I tried to say in the message Sunday was is that we are the advent of Christ in the sense of his first coming because we're the flesh. So in his first coming, he comes in the flesh to bring God in our form. But by the time he's finished his process and his mission on earth, he's filled us with his spirit and essentially said, now you are God in the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean we're all gods, but it just means that with my Holy Spirit in you, you can be as I was a physical representation of the love of God right here and now, which is why we call it the body of Christ with a capital B. And so I just wanted to make that clear, you know, like, like everybody can have an advent to the first coming of Christ because of you at the Christian believer. You can, you can go into their home or their life and you can talk to them about Christ. And in becoming their first experience of Christ, you are that baby in the manger, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and maybe one of the reasons we have such a hard time uh, evangelizing is because we don't, we're not as cute as babies in a manger. You know, if we were as adorable and lovable as a newborn baby, maybe people would actually take us seriously. But, you know, most of the time we're just these ugly, you know, humans who have grown up and don't really reflect Christ that well. I wrote a short story many, many, many years ago when my first child was born and I was reflecting on what it went to be a parent for the first time. And I wrote it in the context of, you know, it was the first Christmas as a dad, you know, and I, and I wrote the story and I said of the baby Jesus that looking into his eyes as an infant in a cradle, you see the same eyes 30 years later that they didn't change. Mm -hmm. You know, when a baby looks at you, the eyes are so open and innocent and accepting. And they don't grow cold and suspicious until later. But his never did. He saw you with the same openness at 30 as he did when he was a child. That's beautiful. I think that brings us to a good point of to be the body of Christ, to be his hands and feet and to reach people in this world, we must first have a changed heart. We yeah. must have a heart that is for him. And you did a great job pointing that out in the sermon. Like, sure, you can use all these techniques, but you have to have a change of heart. Mm -hmm. You have to be you have to be able to articulate what Jesus means to you and how he's changed you. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you can't do that, I mean, sure. Tell people where you go to church, tell people how awesome it is. Tell people about the Christ that, you know, but if you really want to show people what it means to be Jesus and who Jesus is, you must first know him so intimately and so well that you can articulate why he is the savior, why he is mm -hmm. your Lord, the Lord of your life. Because this world, I'm thinking about your metaphor of people being in the wilderness and being like, 
literally swallowed up by the earth, right? The earth just parts and in they go. And nowadays, it's typically less dramatic than that. But the world is so tempting. Yeah. And the world is so deep. Now we have this, you know, massive information database where you can ask it any question and it will tell you anything. Like, there's this deep abyss of worldly mm-hmm. information. And it's so tempting to dive right in. To say, well, I have all these questions. I want all these answers. And there are things out there that will make you think they have all the answers. So it's less dramatic than that. And perhaps being swallowed up by the world is just a metaphor for what happens when the world tosses something your way and it's just an easy out like COVID. Yeah. And we saw that. We saw that happen in Big C Church. People just left the church in droves Mm -hmm. in COVID. And the truth is, that's just because they didn't feel like they needed it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's that's why when I got near the end of the message, I ad-libbed a little bit, in part because we happened to have a few more than usual of our 30-somethings, our late 20s and early 30s, right? And I noticed that. And I thought, well, while they're here, I want them to hear something. Um, We have a friend here, a volunteer who's like a member of the staff, Barbara, um, who always has interesting questions. And, and, uh, you know, she's kind of like the podcast before the podcast, you know. And she asked me a week ago about something, and I kind of alluded to the fact that I was moving in this direction with the sermons for the next couple of weeks. And and I told her what I then repeated in the Sermon Sunday, which is, if I could find the 30-somethings having a small group or a home church or something that they have taken as a suitable substitute for church with the small c. I would like to ask them to answer a question. And the question is this, if I told you that I will let you be in charge of me, be my boss as the pastor, I will give you the keys to the building I will give you authority to make decisions about the building, about worship, about everything. I will put you in charge, even of me. What would you do? Because I'm that desperate to know what we have to do, because all the data indicate that young people are coming back to spirituality that young people, as often happens, will reject their parents' certain values their parents have projected. They'll, you know, if, if, in other words, we got the 1960s hippies because they they, they were the children of the hyper-religious, ultra-self-righteous sort of generation uh, after World War II that said, hey, you know, we, we won that because God loves us and he loves us because we're so awesome. You know, like, like that, that's one of my theses about how the world works. But 
you know, real sociologists would give you a more sophisticated explanation. But my point is, is that as a rule, generally speaking, one generation will always sort of kick away some aspects of the previous generation because they feel that, that, you know, either it didn't work for the previous generation or they feel that the previous generation doesn't try anything new. I, it's hard to explain. Mm -hmm. But my point is, is that we have a generation of young people now who are interested in Christ. They are interested in God. And they are curious about things like biblical prophecy because they see these bizarre, crazy, scary things happening in the world. And they sort of realize that they've heard this talked about, you know, that like they're not altogether ignorant because as you said they live in this information age where they hear things all the time but they don't know who to trust and they you know and it's like i'm sitting here in my office thinking i could help you with that but you refuse to come here because you look at my building and you see something dangerous you see something that you can't trust you you hear that there's this old bald bearded man sitting in that building who has the information you seek but you are afraid that this person has some agenda that is a threat to you you know and and I get it and it's like how do you find out that there are people who really know the lord and really have entered into a legitimate relationship with God through Christ and they do possess God's nature in a sense by the Holy Spirit and that that doesn't make them perfect but what it does make them is humble <laughs> you know and that the last thing that you should fear in a true believer is that they're going to dump all over you and hurt you but the problem is there aren't that many true believers, comparatively speaking. Percentage-wise, the chances of a youngish person going to a church and having a negative experience, as they define it as negative, are really good. <laughs> There's a high probability that a person who anticipates a negative experience at a church will, in fact, have a negative experience by their def definition. In other words, it might not be that some mean old lady yelled at them or some hyper pa pastor stood in the pulpit and yelled and condemned them all to hell. And, you know, like, like, it's not like that. It's that they go to a place where everybody's nice, but it's a negative experience because it just feels as though you've been, you know, sucked dry of the little bit of energy you brought with you you know like like it just it feels like 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 i can tell you this is a very friendly church and some really fine people go to church here but i've noticed on sunday mornings that our greeters will ignore newcomers only because their friends have started talking to them and they don't want to be rude to their friends so they keep talking to their friends rather than cut them off and say, hey, I need to go over and meet this new person. Hmm. So the new, per per new person just gets ignored. 
that's not intentional, but it's the first step in making them feel as though nobody really cares that they're there. Hmm. And then there are people who respond negatively in another way because it looks like you're trying to immediately sort of catch them in your net. You know, like I describe it like a spider. You know, some people feel like the spider feels a little bit of tension on the web and then comes darting in and stabs you with its fang and then immediately wraps you up and, you know, and and it's like... That's a, I'd be afraid of that. Sure. I, I wouldn't listen. I remember one time many, 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 many years ago driving onto a car lot on a Saturday afternoon. And, and I'll never forget it was CarMax and they were all wearing, you know, the same polo shirts with the CarMax logo on it. And they all had clipboards in their right hands. And it was like, these people are so thoroughly trained. And I kid you not, we would drive five feet and another one would appear. And they're smiling and they're walking towards the van and then we'd keep going and another one would appear and another one would appear and another one would appear. And by the time we got off that lot, I was just grateful that none of them actually came in contact with my vehicle because it sort of felt like one of those zombie shows, you know, where they just start piling on yeah. and there's no hope of escape. And, and I thought, well, nobody wants to go to that kind of experience either. Right. So how are we supposed to do it? You know, how, how are we supposed to admit that this church is is a is a institution with a flawed history, with damage in its past, with bad decisions and with good decisions and with best of intentions? And how do we tell people that 10 years ago, what we thought was the best way to do church turned out wasn't really the best way to do church and we suffered because of it? How do we tell people that we understand why a lot of them didn't come back after COVID, but it didn't change the core message of Christ, and it didn't change the fact that Christians can't live in isolation and expect to be fully functional Christians and expect to be living in the benefits of all that. And when you see the world is really scary and chaotic right now and you want some comfort from God and what he says to you is, is you'll find more comfort with my people than apart from my people. So, so we have this whole dichotomy where it's perfectly reasonable to me that young people don't expect to have a good experience at church. But it's also perfectly reasonable to me that if they would give it a chance, and, yeah, I have to admit, they might have to try three or four churches. They're going to maybe have to find us. It's one of the reasons you and I are doing this. Yeah. Hopefully somebody will listen to our podcast and they'll go, well, I mean, those people sound reasonable. Or at least they don't sound like what I thought it would sound like. You know? Yeah. So that whole spider thing, I don't know where he was going with that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, but I, I think it's that's true. a reasonable fear that people have is, is that somehow they're going to, you know, hook you into a multi-level marketing thing or something, you know, and it's like, no, 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 no. We just, we just want you to know that we care that you're here and that we really do want to join with you in whatever the Lord's doing in your life and, and it's kind of my philosophy of no, no appointments. Uh, all appointments are divine appointments. You know, mm -hmm. like, like if you come to visit, I'm going to assume that's a God thing. 
you know, and, and something might change that. I mean, we've, we've had, you know, in the last year, since several churches in the area disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church, as we did, there have been people coming to church to try us out and then not come back. And I think I know why. And I don't mean to offend those people if they ever stumble across this. But I think one of the reasons a lot of them don't, you know, didn't come back is because they were just looking for another form of what they already had. You know, I, I know I've told the story to you and other people on the staff about the guy who called me from Southern Illinois to ask, you know, how it went for us with the disaffiliation. And I, I don't know why he called me. I don't know where he got our number or what possessed him, but he called and, and I listened to him talk and I started asking him some really hard questions and he just started hemming and hawing and everything. And it really dawned on me that the problem I was creating for him was I was asking him if there was any purpose to their church, if their leadership had any vision. And they don't. The problem of young people not expecting to have a good experience goes hand in hand with the fact that so many churches have people who go mindlessly week after week after week in order to satisfy their flesh. And they really don't have any kind of purpose in it. They don't have any sense of, you know, it's why I press so hard for discipleship being an intentional effort. Because if you're not actively pursuing discipleship and you call yourself a Christian believer, well, that's sort of like saying I was born again, but I liked being a baby so much I just decided to stay there. You know, but if you're born again, the exception or the expectation rather is, is that from that day of birth, just like your flesh birth, you grew and you got smarter and you got wiser and you got better as a person. And, you know, <laughs> and yet many, many people will say I accepted Christ because I really wanted the salvation that keeps me from going to hell, but I didn't really want anything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then they go to a church where we completely endorse that mindset by saying, well, that's great. We don't ever have to challenge you to do anything harder. We can just come back week after week, year after year, and we can sing the songs that make you feel good, and we can tell you things that make you feel good, and we can create an environment where you can hang out with your favorite friends, and when that's not enough, you can go meet them at the restaurant once a month for something. You know, it's like... Like, what is that? Mm-hmm. And what I really wanted to ask this guy, or what I, I did ask him, and he just said, well, thanks, and hung up, and that's the last I ever heard of it. Where I put it to him was, is, well, if you're going to disaffiliate, why? And I had a feeling the answer to the question was going to be pretty ugly because it was going to be about one hot issue, Mm-hmm. that I won't even give lip service to because I refused to have my voice recorded saying that in case somebody might think that I think that's what it's about. Sure. I don't. <laughs> I think it has everything to do with our understanding of who God is, our loyalty to Christ as Lord, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And 
religion and so-called Christians categorically on a regular basis reject that. They have become their own gods. They have replaced the God who delivered them from Egypt with the golden calf and claimed that it delivered them from Egypt. They have made themselves Lord of their lives and they have replaced the truth of God's love and the Holy Spirit with their feelings. And if things don't feel good, then they fight them. You know, and and that's why we disaffiliated. At least that's why this pastor disaffiliated and led this congregation in that direction. And I knew full well there were people in this congregation who didn't think it through that way. But I never gave them an opportunity to articulate lesser things. I made it clear that for me, this is what it was about. Every Sunday during that process, I did the Joshua thing where he stood at the edge of the promised land and said to the people, go ahead and worship the false gods if you want. But as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. And I said that every Sunday during our process, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be as clear as Joshua about that. So... That, in a sense, is still what I'm trying to say. But now I'm saying to the congregation, I love you people, but, you know, if you really want to see this church outlast you, you're going to have to create an environment where people who are younger than you want to be. And that's going to cost you. It, it, it's going to cost you something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you want to see these younger people take the reins of this church and carry it into the future, then you're going to have to start by figuring out why your children and your grandchildren don't come to church anymore. And it doesn't matter if they live somewhere else and that's your reason. Are they going to church somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Is their church dying because it's aging out? Because if it is, then that means they're going to church, but they're going in the spirit that you are going to going in. Like, like, like I'm not going to give you a break. If you, if, if you let me ask you these questions, I won't give you a break. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that the only thing that you can do or say that's going to satisfy me, not that this is about me, but it's when you say, I get it. We need to care more deeply about the souls of the coming generations than we do. Because soul health is the thing. Churches are hospitals that have turned into spas. (laughs) I just made that up. That's pretty good. You know, I've used the aircraft carrier versus cruise ship analogy for years. But I think I like that. You know, you build this big hospital and you say, here's where we are going to care for the sick. We're going to have an ER, ED now they call them, emergency departments down here that's going to deal with acute emergency needs. 
And then over here, we're going to have therapeutic care and we're going to have mental support and we're going to have cancer treatments and all this and everything. And, and it's like we created this entire institution for the purpose of bringing health and vitality to people's souls. And then we proceeded to let it become a spa where all we do is comfort people and assure them that they'll never be asked to do something uncomfortable. You know, I don't know about you, but whenever I go to the hospital, I'm usually already in pain. And if I'm not, there will be pain, you know, because they're going to draw blood or they're going to ask me to lay on a really hard surface so I can get an x-ray or they're going to, you know, or they're going to say, does this hurt? Yeah, it hurts, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about an extension to your metaphor. So, but I'm thinking about why people go to both of those places, right? So if church is supposed to be a hospital and in this case, an emergency room, someone goes to the emergency room or ED because they need it. There is some emergency and they need to be there. Mm -hmm. Typically, people don't necessarily want to be there. Okay, hear me out. But with spas, people choose to go and to be comforted. And, you know, they go to be served mm -hmm. in some way to feel better about themselves. And that is not what church should be. Mm -hmm. And granted, you do go to the emergency room to be served as well, but there, there's a need there. There's a desperation there. And that's how we should enter into church. We should be desperate for God and for the gospel because we know that we can't heal ourselves on our own. We need mm -hmm. intervention through God. And it's funny, uh, not funny, I'm not surprised much anymore, but what you're saying is what I have been thinking about the past day or two. Yeah. Um, I was reflecting on my own personal first time experience coming to Shiloh because on Sunday I'm going to be telling the congregation about my testimony of my faith journey. And a huge part of that is Shiloh. And I had a great first time experience here mm -hmm. where I felt appropriately cared for. I did not feel like the spider in the web. And I also didn't feel the opposite right? Mm -hmm. um, and everyone comes into church with their own presuppositions. Is that yeah. a good word? Of yeah, like, I think so. Of like growing up thinking that church is fill in the blank, right? Mm -hmm. Church is hostile, maybe. Yeah. Church is a place where I've gone in the past and I've been hurt, yep. right? And so you talk about these young people who come in and they think church is one way or the other. And that's because that's what their life experience has taught them. I don't blame them for one second right. for thinking that because it's part of our responsibility as church going people to recognize the trauma that church has done to people in the past. Mm -hmm. Church has hurt people. And what I'm seeing more on social media that I love, and I'll say it here is that, um, if you have been hurt by church, you've encountered people, not God. God does not hurt you. People hurt you. And so if you've been hurt and you're resistant about church or you think that we are, you know, hypocrites or whatever, you've, you've definitely encountered the counterfeit in your past. Mm -hmm. You've encountered people who are broken and they've come to this, this hospital 
to be served and yet oh no it was a spa and i'm still hurting and i'm still broken yeah. i still have broken bones sticking out through my skin and you gave yeah. me cucumber water you know oh i think that's brilliant uh i love it adrian i really do and you know as a guy who because i think i've always been in the people helping business all my life you know i when i was a grade schooler and when i was in junior high school i was in cub scouts and boy scouts and and i leaned way into the whole helping people you know this is an old image but it was a big deal when i was a cub scout which is the earliest entry point back in the early 70s but you couldn't get your first pin it was always turned upside down until you did a good deed and then the person you did the good deed for would turn your pin right side up and that was a sign that you had figured out the importance of doing good deeds right cool and boy scout i mean cub scouts were usually re referred to in the media as the little boys who would help an old lady walk across a busy street you know that kind of thing and well, I really leaned into that. So I've always been a helper. You know, I, I don't brag about that. I just, it's, it's always been my nature. I want to help people. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I became a firefighter and an EMT. And I've worked in ER or emergency departments uh, as a volunteer just to hone my skills in, as an EMT. And, and then in ministry, I've done stints as a chaplain in hospitals and been back in those same emergency departments. And and, you know, coming alongside people who hurt is a natural thing for me. And it's been so frustrating in church how seldom that happens until the inevitable things happen. So, so people keep coming to the spa, let's say, until they get old or they get a diagnosis or something. And then they go, you know, can you dust off the, the spiritual soul care uh, equipment because now I don't need that other stuff as much as I need that. And so I'm not sure exactly where I was going with that, but in my mind's eye, it was all very clear that, that the idea is, is that, that I know why I'm a pastor and it has a lot to do with the fact that I like helping people. And what I found even recently here at Shiloh, as you know, is when I started talking to people about how I really wanted them to be on a discipleship pathway and I wanted them to consult with me personally to help them along that way, it backfired. And in part because I apparently didn't put it in the right frame for people. So I'm willing to accept that I may not have communicated clearly what I was getting at. But nobody signed up. Nobody asked me to, to help them. And I thought to myself, okay, how could you have communicated it more clearly? And one of the things I could have said that might have made a difference is this is a soul care provider, you know, as opposed to a health care provider. Um, your soul care provider institution is Shiloh Church and your principal soul care practitioner is me. Mm -hmm. the pastor of the church. People say, what are pastors? You know, these days, sometimes, sometimes people will say to me, what do you do? And I'll say, I'm a pastor. And I can tell them trying to work. I can tell they're trying to work that out in their mind. Like, what is that? You know, like, what is a pastor? You know, 
And, you know, sometimes I will describe myself as the CEO of a religious institution because people can understand that, you know. But the reality is, is what I'm trained to do, what I'm the most gifted at doing and the most called to is to be a spiritual practitioner. That is to say, I'm like your doctor, only soul care is my thing, you know, and the funny thing is, is how little of that I actually get to do. So I give a lecture once a week on soul health and people thank me for it. <laughs> and they don't take the vitamins I recommend. They, they don't do the daily treatments or the exercises that I recommend. They, they never come to me to get a diagnosis of whatever might be ailing them they never call upon me in their crisis unless they've been trained to do that in the past. So basically people over a certain age will want me to know about their toothache. But people under a certain age, if I say, well, let me know if I can come and, and you know, be of service to you. And they go, yeah, okay, whatever. And they can't even figure out why I would offer to do that. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. and, and so we have this identity crisis in the local church because the Christians who were within the walls of the local church redefined it as a spa and the Christians or the wannabe Christians who came here looking for practical soul care didn't get it or they never got past the receptionist right right and here I sit. And, and as you know, and, and cause you asked me earlier today, before we started recording, you said, did you hear from any of the older members about your message? And you were implying that I was probably offending some of them because I said, us older members need to get out of the way. We need to let you come younger people and define how this church meets your family's needs. But rest assured, we'll be here to make sure that it doesn't serve as some sort of social club. It's got to be a soul care institution. And if that's what you're here for, then you need to tell me what you need. You know, in other words, I can't give you soul care without a diagnosis. And, and, and in the same way, you as a physical therapist could say to the person, I, okay, I've got your doctor's orders, but, you know, what hurts? What do you need? Okay, here's a treatment re recommendation. You know, here's a regimen we want you to follow. You know, and, and it's, so it's like everybody generally knows what they want and knows what they need. And sometimes they need expert help with those things. And sometimes they need expert help trying to figure out the difference between what they need and what they want, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, this churches, local churches are so completely fogged in by their own identity crisis that they don't even understand why their children and grandchildren don't want to come there. And I alluded to that. And I'm going to allude to it again this Sunday and not because I'm on a mission to get fired or try to dis just really disturb the people in this congregation. I can say it because I have enough of their respect so far 
after seven and a half years, they seem pretty confident that, that I'm acting in their best interest too. That they hear me saying these things and they go, well, you know, you're right. That we're going to age out and there won't be anybody left. And we have to be willing to make room for the young. And we have to make sure that the young understand that we don't want this place or what it stands for to change if you're talking about the core values because we fought against that we we put our money and our reputation on the line we've already proven that we want to serve the lord just like joshua as for me and my house i want to serve the lord so we're not willing to give that up but we are willing to give that to you we're willing to let you say we want that too but if we were in charge this is what it would be like and what i want the young people to hear is, is i hear you i see you mm-hmm. and i'm ready for you to tell me how you would take charge of that mission to serve the lord you know and i'm just praying that i get to see it because what you know better than a lot of people is is that well confidentially I'm scared to say this on record, but (laughs) you know I'd rather hang out with younger people. (laughs) I don't have anything against older people. I love them dearly, and I have served them faithfully for decades. And now I'm getting closer than I've ever been to being one. But I still enjoy being around children more than anything in the world. I still enjoy being around teenagers and young adults and families with young children. And I am just energized in their presence. And I don't always feel that way when I'm around older people. And I I don't want those older people to think that I don't love them. Mm -hmm. But I kind of wonder why they don't want that same vitality, inspiration, whatever you want to call it. And maybe they do. But I'm, I'm out there seeking those relationships. You know, you, you were joking earlier about this, you know, our, our office staff is like a little family, you know. Yeah. And, and everybody who works here is younger than me. And that's not an accident. Mm. <laughs> that's not by accident. Yeah. You know, and um, I think. Well, you know, I was in this radio play last week and in the process of preparing for that, I was enjoying so much the fact that I was the oldest guy in the room and I was around all these cool younger people. And there were people on the cast who were, you know, eight-year-old girls and some of them were their moms and some of them were younger men from around the community. And I was just having a ball and I kept thinking, this is a church congregation I'd want to hang out with. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And again, I'm not trying to say anything hurtful to the people that I love in these churches. I'm just being honest. The honest truth is, is all these churches with older people who pretty much work towards assuring their comfort and the security of knowing that the church will always be the same week after week. It's not serving God's purpose. It's serving you, you know, it's serving you. Do you really want that? You know, 
seriously, do you want that? Does it bother you that your kids and your grandkids aren't coming to your church or any church? And it, it should, because you want to see younger people in the church. The first thing that's got to change is, is your passion for getting your own younger people in the church. I talked to my son and my sons and my daughters about their relationship with God. And I don't do it in a way that makes them feel like they never want to come to Thanksgiving dinner again. I just say, I can't hide how much I love the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I can't hide that when you want answers to the hard questions, my faith is informing how I answer. You know, I can't hide the fact that I know you could very likely walk into a church and have a negative experience, but you need relationships with other Christians and you may have to work at finding them. And it's the responsibility of people like me to facilitate that. Yeah. You know, I've been called upon in several different ways to represent the youth of this church. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, on the leadership team, you were like, we need a youth representative. And then you asked me to be the youth director, right? And so now I'm kind of representing the teenagers as well, and also representing the young adults just by being an active young adult in this congregation. And so I just wanted to take a moment to say that as the, as a youth representative of our church, I just want to say that we recognize the importance of the wisdom of the elderly, right? Mm -hmm. Like we love you and we need you. We need to learn from you, right? And so like here's a young person saying that please stick around. Teach me what you've learned. I want to learn from you. And I don't want you to hear in a prideful way the youth of this church saying, step aside, it's our turn, we know better, right? Like that is not at all what is going on here. Um, And I, for some reason, one morning, I think last week, there was a voice in my head that was just like, do the daily devotional on the Shiloh app today. I don't ever do that. I'm just going to be honest with you. But I did that one day. I don't know. I had some extra time. I think I was on the treadmill. Mm. And I was like, okay, I'm going to check it out. And sure enough, it was one about the youth and the elderly. And I just wanted to read a bit of it because I think it was perfect. I screenshotted it. And I thought, yes, this is what we've been talking about in our Shiloh leadership team meetings. This is what we're talking about at Shiloh right now is this balance between the youth and the old. Right. And so it's like it's clear to everyone that the scales are tipped. There are more elderly than there are youth in our church and for vitality and for the continuation of Shiloh. We must have more youth. We must. But we cannot lose the older people because they keep us grounded. And this is just a paragraph. It says um, we need both the energy and exuberance of youth and the wisdom and experience of the aged. Too often the elderly develop an attitude of giving up on overcoming certain problems because of past unsuccessful attempts, while the youth tend to think anything is possible. 
Youth often have zeal without knowledge, while older people often have knowledge but lack zeal. So we need input from both young and old. It should be stated clearly, young people, you need the wisdom and experience of old people. And older people, you also need the strength, energy, and enthusiasm of young people. To be at our best, we need each other. Mm, That's brilliant. It's perfect. I'm so glad that you said all that, Adrian, because as you said it, it occurred to me that I often accuse people I don't say that word lightly. I don't mean to be accusing, but I suspect that's how it sounds. I often make people think that I'm disappointed in them because they seem proud to me. And I think that they're frustrated with me because maybe they're thinking that I don't understand what's really holding them back. When I say, why don't your children and grandchildren go here to church or anywhere to church? And I understand you're afraid. You're afraid to drive them away because you want them in your life. You don't want them to go away. You're afraid that you don't know how to share your faith with them without driving them away. I understand. And then understand, too, that you used to be more bold. You used to have the zeal, you know. You used to be more courageous, but you've been hurt. And your hurts have turned into fears, and your fears have turned into unrealistic expectations. And I get it. I've been there and done that. I'm older now than I've ever been before. (laughs) I understand. But I want to stay. I want to keep being brave. I want to keep being adventurous. I want to keep being bold. And I think that more often than not, the fear that you just addressed is holding people back because they're they're afraid of being told that they're not relevant anymore, that they don't matter. They're afraid that they're never going to get to hear the songs they like in church on Sunday morning. Everything gets catastrophized, you know, it gets turned into this really big problem that never actually happens. And what you have to do in your wisdom, older people, is join me in realizing that you're pretty much in the driver's seat, that the younger people are going to submit to your authority as it's perceived, but they'll only do it for so long if you abuse that authority. You know, because, and you you may not abuse that authority overtly, but by not respecting them. You know, like I think, and you you would have to be the judge, Adrian, or people like you, but I think the reason that I enjoy hanging out with young people and the reason they seem to keep coming back to me is because they know I love them and respect them. Absolutely. And there's never a question about that. It's like when I'm talking to the three-year-olds in our preschool, you know, I get down on my knee and I talk to them at their level and I talk to them just like I would you only using words that are more appropriate for a three or four year old. 
And I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I, I do that because I want to. I do it because I do love them. Because I do care about them. And so one of the things that I'm guilty of with older people is being misunderstood because I don't appear to understand the factors that are affecting their behaviors. But I would say older people, a lot of times you don't appear to understand the factors that are affecting the behaviors of the young. Mm. And the cure for that is a conversation. The cure for that is genuine love. This just like, you know, <laughs> we got people that bring their dogs into the church all the time. And those dogs all love visiting me. And I don't have any treats in here. In fact, I don't have any candy in here. <laughs> and so kids and dogs come to visit me in my office and it isn't for candy or treats. But they always get lots of pets and gentle words. <laughs> you know, they get lots of that. Oh, I love it when you scratch me right there. You know, I mean, it's just. What can I say? I think that the most important thing all of us do is love one another, you know, and, and, and love naturally generates respect. It's easy to love people you respect. It's easy to respect people you love. It, it just is. Obviously, there are scary and bad people in the world. And, you know, there are times when people walk into my office that I don't know. And I quickly assess that they're here wanting something and they're not doing it out of love or respect for me or this institution. They're doing it because they feel like they're entitled to something from a church. And that's not the same kind of experience I have with your dog or your three-year-old. It's different. Yeah. And I understand that sometimes you have to be wise and discerning and you have to be alert and you have to be uh, vigilant, you know, because, because there are dangerous encounters. There are risky relationships. I get it. I really do. But that's why we cultivate this idea at Shiloh that we're a family. Because if people start to feel like family, then you feel like you're talking to a grandparent or a parent or a child or a nephew or a niece or whatever. And, and you know what? We have room in our hearts for people there. Lots of room in our hearts. And we just have to give the love. Yeah. And I think overall, Shiloh does a great job of loving each other. Mm -hmm. I know I certainly feel loved the moment I walk in the doors. And even at home, thinking about the people I go to church with, my family, I feel loved and yeah. supported yeah. in a way that no other institution can provide for you. Um, and I think therein lies the importance of church. You need to be in Christian community and to be loved by other Christians. And if you're finding anything other than that at your church, run. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a good piece of advice. You know, it's, you know, um, are you getting comfort from the rituals? Are you getting comfort from the relationships? Are you getting comfort from the spirit of God. You know, I've made the comment several weeks ago, months maybe, of the one thing I've noticed is when a Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit prays, the spirit in me will resonate 
like there's a harmony it it and resonance is is this sort of hum that everything around picks up because of the tune or the tone and i find that my spirit resonates with the spirit of another believer you know and if you're not experiencing that resonance you're probably not in a holy spirit inspired environment and unfortunately it can feel very religious it can have all the smells and bells as they say you know but honestly these days there are so many um you know what's the word i'm looking for there's just there's so many uh, self-medication opportunities out there you know <laughs> And, and they never satisfy, you know, like, like if you're going to a spa instead of a soul care institution, then you're probably receiving a lot of placebos. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, here's the latest aromatherapy gimmick. Here's the latest uh, uh, bath salts gimmick. Here's the, and some of this stuff has got legitimate truth to it, but so much of it is, you know, less than trustworthy yeah you know? <laughs> and god is not a gimmick yeah right yeah he's as, the real deal as genuine christians we're not trying to get something from you yeah right it's not a gimmicky thing we're not trying to sell you something except for maybe the keys to the kingdom of heaven you know what i mean like and they're free and they're free right <laughs> and and we know that and it's like we just want to give that gift away just like God gave us that gift. Um, you know, you were talking about resonance, and I thought to ask you this. Do you know the first time I ever felt that resonance with the Holy Spirit with anyone? No. No? Have I not shared that with you? Well, maybe you have, but for the moment, I'm not sure I'm resonating with you. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, well, it was with you. Yeah, it was that that one day. And I'm going to talk about this on Sunday. But that one day I came into your office and I was brand new at Shiloh. And I asked you some deeply personal questions. And at the end of our long conversation, you asked if you could pray with me. And mm -hmm. we took hands, right? And you were praying with me. And that's the first time I had ever felt the Holy Spirit. Truly. Mm. I, God. I think that's the first time anyone had ever prayed with me like that. Wow. You know what I mean? Thank you, Lord. Yeah. And so it's that resonance um, of just, just feeling the Holy Spirit through two Christians. Mm -hmm. I, I don't even know if I was a Christian at that point in time, you know? Well, your soul was awakened, that's for sure. Absolutely. Wow. So I'm not sure if you've told me that or not, not quite that way or whatever, but thank you for that. Of course. Well, so here's a gift in return in a way, because as you were talking earlier about the family of God and the spirit resonance in, in a different way, I, you're, it reminded me of your wedding this summer, you and Anthony, your wedding was probably one of the most spirit filled wedding ceremonies I have ever experienced. And it was your love for the Lord and I think your desire to meld all of these important people that you loved into one experience and you pulled it off. And I know that there were anxieties about how some of the family members would experience our 
our religious practices and all of that, but you put a lot of trust in me, you put a lot of trust in each other, you put a lot of trust in your Shiloh family, and it happened. There was a resonance. There was a there was this thing that happened that day where the whole Shiloh family and the families of Anthony's side and the family that's on your side and all the friends and loved ones and everybody there was in a sacred space for a little while. And it was pretty cool. Yeah. And I'd like church to be like that every Sunday, you know. There are churches that'll talk about, I wish we could have Easter Sunday every Sunday, but all they're really talking about is, is the energy you get from larger than average attendance. <laughs> sure. I'd rather church was like your wedding every Sunday, you know. I'd rather that church was, you know, uh, where this resonance was achieved every time, you know. I mean, that's that's cool. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I agree. There was a certain resonance and a, a certain love that filled the air that day. Mm-hmm. And my goal was to show people this is the love that we have for each other. And most importantly, this is the love that we have through Christ. Yeah. Come experience that with us. See what what is actually going on here. Yeah. Um, and I'm so glad that it did because I've had so many people say that was the you know most special wedding, most fill in the blank. It was just a great mm-hmm. day. So... That brings me to another point. Like you talked about earlier, older people uh, struggling to connect with like, well, the the struggles of a younger person. Mm -hmm. And I experienced that in wedding planning. Mm. There were so many people who came up, oh, congratulations. Beautiful. Just it was so pure and so wholesome. And they were just truly happy. How's the planning going? And, you know, no matter what I would say, oh, it's so stressful right now. Oh, well, it'll be worth it, you know. And so there's this, like, nicety, this super almost toxic niceness that (laughs) comes from that sort of thing to where you're like, man, can nobody just recognize how stressed out I am right now? Am I alone in this? And so uh, that was probably really loud in your ear. Sorry. But, um, (laughs) But it's like... Connect with those people. Ask them, that sounds really stressful. How can I help you? How can I be there yeah. for you? How can I support you in this hard time? And there there comes this emotional fragility, too, that comes in that time of times where I would burst into tears and have no idea why. But it's like you're just stressed so chronically. Yeah. And so I just want to put a plug in there for Emily right now <laughs> because she's in wedding planning just she's in the thick of it and so if you're listening to this truly ask her how she's doing how can you help her in a helpful spirit (laughs) right um because us young people we're going through a lot and we need that and same with new mothers and that kind of thing i mean we're going through a lot this world is a crazy place and i think that's one of those things that gosh you said so many things i could take off with um toxic niceness man i like that because that that's you know i I've always cracked on that whole spirit of niceness. And that's really what we're talking about is toxic niceness. Like, you know, that's not making anything better. You know, you think you're being nice and that somehow is glorifying Christ. And, and he's, you know, that's a little bit like the guys driving the nails in his wrists saying, this is going to hurt a little, 
you know, that's toxic niceness. It doesn't change the fact that you're crucifying the man, you know, and, and so that's toxic niceness. But anyway, the the thing you're saying is is so plain that, you know, we could be using our wisdom as elders to encourage you if we weren't afraid that you would dismiss it or that you might ask more of us than we feel capable of giving because I think that's another threat. Sure. And as elders, you would hopefully have gained enough life experience and self-confidence at this point in your life where you could say, you know, I can definitely give you some support. I probably can't give you too much, but I can give you some. I mean, you know, you, you're allowed to say, I know that any effort I make to help you is going to be appreciated. You know that because you've had many, many years of living it. You know, it's like, like just accept that you, you didn't arrive at all these conclusions about life, the universe and everything without having gained some confidence, I hope, you know, so... So, yeah, when, when you're talking to the person who's stressed out and they're young and, and, you know, there are two things you could say to them. I've been there and I know what that's like. Good old feel felt found. Mm-hmm. Right. I know how you feel. I have felt that way myself. And here's what I found. That's doable, practical support that an older person or a more seasoned person can give to a younger, less seasoned person. But the other thing you can do is you can give yourself permission to set limits on what you are going to give simply because when you reach the point where you feel overwhelmed and no longer within your strength, you have permission to say, you know, honey, I may have to come back and, and, and talk to you more about this later on the phone because I got to go to the wherever. And, you know, can I call you back this evening? You know, it's like like. You know, because that's what real relationships are about, right? You know? Yeah. So, well, I'm sorry, as we were passing each other in the hall that I got roped into a very painful discussion about how stressed you are, <laughs> you know, and, and that's why I didn't really want to know. Okay, then you've communicated that clearly. On the other hand, you could say, well, wherever I was going isn't that important. But you're also able to say, but I'm now past the ability to take this any further here and now. So what could I do to support you beyond this moment? It's like, take charge. Yeah. I don't know. I, I find it strange that people, not, you know, not just in church, it's just that that's my principal context as a pastor. It's like, I don't know very many people outside of a religious context and and what I think most people don't seem willing to do these days is, is accept responsibility. Like, you know, to just like, like when we're in a family, we have a responsibility to and for each other. And we accept that because even when we're doing things that we don't really want to do, we go, wow, but this is my mother, you know, this is my brother. This is my nephew, you know, like, like there's just this thing that tells you that you can't escape this responsibility. And yet we do allow ourselves to escape responsibility on so many things we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it turns out, for example, that in every community, obeying the traffic laws is a responsibility we all carry to each other. And when you decide you don't have to abide by the same rules the rest of us are abiding by, you're saying, I don't care about anybody but me. I'm just doing what I want to do. And you're between me and where I want to be. You know, and if we treat each other that way on the road, it's one thing. But we treat each other that way in the halls of the church building. We are not getting the point that this is a family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and you... If you're looking for a scriptural reference, guess what? You know, Jesus said, who is my brother? Who is my mother? You know, he, he had, is immediately dealt with that. that to say that, that this is a family that goes beyond the flesh, beyond DNA. You know, yes, it starts with your family of origin. But as you grow in the family of God, these are all your mothers and all your fathers and all your brothers and sisters. And, and you have to be willing to embrace that. And so you wonder why some people expect to have a negative experience at church and then aren't disappointed. It might stem from the fact that we don't accept each other as God's gift and responsibility. You know, that I have a responsibility to this person who came into my midst. Because Jesus said, when I was a stranger, you clothed me and welcomed me in. You know, when Jesus said, when I was hungry, you fed me. You know, I mean, yeah. You know, it, we're not willing to at least do that with our church family or people who enter into our church home as guests, you know, and, it, and it's like, come on, people. You know, this is what it means to be the family of God. This is where you live out the Christian values that you claim are so vitally important to you. That's why the apostles' letters have so much admonition in them at Christian people and how they should treat each other. Like Paul's always jamming on the people in the churches that he's writing to about how they're not treating each other right. Um, the prophets of the Old Testament complained as oracles. In other words, they were speaking for God. So through the prophets, God was saying to the leaders of Israel and Judah, you know what really ticks me off is how you treat your own people. <laughs> this is what Amos would say or, or Hezekiah or one of the, the not Hezekiah, but uh, he, he, anyway. This is, this is what the, the minor prophets, the ones we don't talk about as much because their books are smaller, you know. These guys would go to places like, like Israel or Judah and they would talk to the king and they would do some really outrageous thing, you know, like run naked back and forth in the town square. And, and they'd say, this is me acting like the people you don't care about. They're naked and you don't clothe them, you know, or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. like the whole point is, is that God really really hates oppression and chaos as we've already discussed but you know where he hates it the most in his people yeah when his own chosen people his own people for whom he sent his own son to die and reconcile him with god when they don't treat each other right that really offends god and grieves god you know And so at church, we want to be the family of God. And that means that if we don't act very Christian anywhere else, 
we should act that way in church. The problem, of course, is that a lot of churches have defined a tradition of niceness or some other holier-than-thou sanctimonious behavior and decided that that is acting the part. But, you know, ask kids whose parents are sanctimonious, holier-than-thou jerks how they feel about their parents after they escape the home and develop a life of their own. And, you know, that's a scary thing for me to say, but my, my point is simply this, is that people who have loved their children unconditionally will usually have their children coming back to them for many, many years, and they will grieve their parents' passing someday. But when the parents were more wrapped up in image and their own needs and wants and feelings and never really unconditionally loved their children and they never opened themselves to letting the children be whoever they are and then guiding them lovingly towards becoming the best version of that. If that if that's not what you're doing, then don't be surprised if your kids don't want anything to do with you. Bring that back around to church. If the church family is a place where it's a bunch of holier-than-thou people who think that they're smarter than everybody else, better than everybody else, because they play the game better, because they put on the show better, well, you know what? Young people looking for a place to worship God, they see right through that. You know, they see right through that. In fact, I, I think I said this in a sermon several months ago, that, that the God's enemy will call you out faster than anybody. Like you, you could fool other Christians, maybe, or maybe they're just playing the niceness game and being toxically nice, you know, and they won't tell you. But Satan, you know, you, you get in front of a demon-possessed person, he'll look you right in the eye and say, you know you're a big phony, don't you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, children and dogs demons they're all right there to tell you the way things really are if you listen not that dogs and children have anything in common with demons but truth comes from all different sources and if you're not listening to it it's because you want to be deaf mm -hmm. <laughs> and you want to go to church where everybody's as deaf as you and you're all patting each other on the back for your deafness boy i'm on a rant today <laughs> I think maybe we should call it there for time's sake. Yeah. What do you think? I think it's time. All right. Good conversation. Thank you. See you next week. Bye.